This episode of Weed Wonks is brought to you by our friends over at Greenworks Consults, which specializes in helping businesses get better at doing business. Greenworks Consults owner Jason is a pro when it comes to the fine art and science of business process optimization. He and his team of fellow process experts will work with you to set up metrics by which your business can be measured. Then we'll help you develop ways to do things more efficiently, which will directly translate into you saving money, usually on a month-to-month basis. Don't burn away any resources that you don't have to just because you haven't taken the time to tune things up. By working with Greenworks Consults, you will boost your bottom line and build the overall health of your business. If you like the idea of having a healthier operation and more money in your bank account at the end of every month, swing over to greenworksconsults.com today to learn more about how Jason and his team can help you. That's greenworksconsults.com with works spelled W-O-R-X. That's greenworksconsults.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Weed Wonks, the podcast that dives deep into the nerdy details, the minutiae, the ever-fun silliness that is cannabis regulatory policy. And we do it all to help our fellow policy wonks, policymakers, regulators, business members, advocates, and the curious stay more informed about the changing landscape of cannabis laws and regulations. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. I'm your host, Jordan Wellington, partner at the firm VS Strategies, and with us in spirit is my policy partner in crime, Andrew Livingston, director of economics and research at Vicente Cedarberg. Given the heavy recording schedule that we have over the next couple of weeks, Andrew's sitting this one out. But fear not, wonderful listeners, what that really means is, as always, we have more time for our amazing guests and less time for you to listen to Andrew and I blather about nonsense. And... uh, Today, we have two amazing new first-time guests on the Weed Wonks. No more recurring guests for this week. Uh, And I am incredibly excited to have this conversation uh, with our good friends from the National Conference of State Legislatures. We have Carmen Hansen and Amanda Zock uh, here with us today. Uh, And we are going to talk about the various ballot initiatives that uh, have passed relating to cannabis legalization and diving into what each one of those means. Uh, I've had the wonderful pleasure of getting to know Carmen over uh, a lot of years here now in Denver because the National Conference of State Legislatures is here in Denver, Colorado. And I remember when we first connected, I was like, oh my God, I love you guys. I know who you guys are. This is like the coolest thing in the world. And I'm probably one of the few people that have ever referred to NCSL as one of the coolest things in the world. But I feel that way. I think you all are wonderful. Uh, and so I am incredibly happy to have you uh, on on the show with us today to talk about all these things. So uh, maybe Amanda, you could go first, just so we're in alphabetical order. And then Carmen, just introduce yourself. Uh, and then let's talk about what NCSL is and why a dork like me would be so excited to hear from you. Well, I'm excited to go first with the Z last name. I always have to go last. So um, I work in the Elections and Redistricting Program at NCSL, as well as the Center for Legislative Strengthening. Uh, I think the reason why I'm here is because a lot of my work in the elections team focuses on ballot measures and the citizen initiative process. And so how uh, those kind of processes get legislated, but also what voters will see on their ballots. And this year there were 124 measures for me to track and Carmen helped me and we continue to track them. So um, that's kind of my my main purpose these days at NCSL. And I've only worked there for a little bit over a year. So Carmen has uh, been a great, uh, I don't know, a great friend, honestly, at this point in helping me kind of get to know NCSL more and being um, so useful with all the ballot measures. So she's a great expert on marijuana too. I've, I've learned a lot. That sounded weird, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Thanks, Mandy. Yeah, um, I'm Carmen Hansen, uh, Program Director for Behavioral Health and Pharmaceuticals and NCSL's health program. And I've covered a variety of policy areas, including pharmaceuticals, tobacco, uh, behavioral health topics, and I've tracked uh, cannabis policies for about 15 years or so and have been at NCSL almost 20 years, which is seems really hard to believe, but here we are. So it's really, we're happy to be here today, Jordan. Um, you're podcast does provide a lot of wonkiness for those of us that do like to get into these details and learn more and just, you know, expand what we know so we can share that information with 
legislators and legislative staff when they come to us, because that's really kind of our goal. Yeah, so I think that's the perfect kind of uh, segue to set us up for our first topic of conversation, which is not about cannabis or cannabis policy at all. I just want to talk about what N NCSL is, because I... I, I think that it is it's something that I learned about when I was a bill drafter in New Jersey before I moved to Colorado before I got involved in in public in cannabis at all um, and was one of like the things when I first moved out here where I was like oh my god that's really cool because as I moved across the country and needed to like figure out where I might be able to find a job uh, NCSL was like on the top of the list of places that someone like me could actually end up finding a job at a home and, and be really happy. And I think I even did early on when I was, before I landed at VS and found my, my kind of hopefully forever home. Um, I did even apply to some jobs there. You know, I will say, thankfully they didn't work out cause I think I'm where I'm supposed to be and where I belong in the universe. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I just remember when I think Carbid, you reached out to me, I can't even remember how many years ago. And we've just kept in touch over the years, frequently going to get bagels at Rosenberg's Bagels and Delicatessen, because of course we want to give props to the greatest bagel place outside of the New York metropolitan area on this show at all times. Um, and and it, we would just get together and we would have no agenda. We would just, you know, talk about whatever the heck was interesting and talk about policy. Um, and from there, we've built an awesome friendship. And so I kind of was always looking forward to having you on the show and figuring out what that is. But before we get into all the, the meaty cannabis stuff, I think people should understand who NCSL is and why you you play such an important role in the background of our state legislatures because it's not easy to be a state legislator it's not easy to be a legislator of any kind um, and in many ways you are almost like auxiliary staff uh, and you're not staff for them but like you provide backup for a lot of folks who really need that kind of policy support so uh, could, let, let's talk a little bit about about the organization, its history, and what you do to help our government be the best it can be. Sure. Thanks for that question, Jordan. This is Carmen. Uh, NCSL, in a nutshell, you're, you're right. We are kind of like a backup uh, research staff for the state legislators across the country. But more importantly, NCSL is the bipartisan organization representing the legislatures in the states, territories, and commonwealths. And our main goal is to advance the effectiveness, independence, and integrity of legislatures and foster that interstate cooperation and facilitate the exchange of uh, ideas among legislatures. We're also the strong voice for state legislatures on Capitol Hill. Uh, we're supporting uh, state sovereignty and state flexibility and uh, protection from unfunded federal mandates. And more specifically, we work to improve legislative operations and managements within state legislatures and the effectiveness of state legislators and legislative staff, of which there are 7,383 state legislators and about 30,000 legislative staff. And even more importantly, and probably right after our name, um, it should be said, you know, we as NCSL staff being a bipartisan organization, we do not take any position on state level policies. And we do not write or endorse model legislation on any topic. So we're kind of one of those just the facts. <laughs> we'll, we'll answer questions for people and dig up information that they are looking for. But we, you know, doesn't matter to us what a state necessarily ultimately does because, you know, that's their business. We're just here to help them uh, do their jobs better. Yeah. I, I, I was just going to add that one way NCSL was explained to me when I started um, was that we have kind of bipartisan leadership, right? We're kind of governed by a bipartisan board of state legislators themselves, and that we produce nonpartisan research and nonpartisan information. And I think that's a very helpful, helpful way to think about it. Yeah, it's, it's nonpartisan and it is non-goal oriented in the sense of like, you don't have positions on any issues. You don't, say, you know, I love the, we don't have model legislation. We're not saying you should pass, let's say a particular piece of cannabis policy because this is actually the best practice or you shouldn't, uh, you know, you should deal with a gaming issue this way or an environmental issue that way. It is much more almost like a library, like a repository of policy. And you, you know, what, when I was a bill drafter, I would rely on, on NCSL for a lot of things because I was new to a lot of the areas of policy where they would just be like, Jordan, go write a bill on renewable energy portfolio standards. And I was like, okay, cool. How do I do that? What does that actually mean? Uh, 
okay, the first thing I'm going to do is, is figure out what NCSL has on the matter, because I know that if I go to any of the lobbyists or the industry or anything else, I'm going to get a jaded perspective. And, and it may be good or bad. It's not a judgmental thing. But if you want the unvarnished facts, if you want to know, well, this state's done this and this state's done this. And, you know, here's some data about what we do know. Um, and, and here are options out there and things to think about. NCSL is that kind of amazing resource for many of our legislators, for many of our staff to be able to really um, uh, learn about something without trying to be influenced. Because I think so many legislators and so many staffers, the only way they can learn about issues is from people who are trying to actually influence their position one way or another. And this is, I love it. It's just the fracks. It's Joe Friday, right? It is this is just how things work. This, this is just how things have worked in other states. This has done this. This one's done that. Whatever you think is best for you guys, we're good. Uh, but here is the information. And that's got to be a, a really fulfilling role because it's so important for our legislators to have that because most states don't have the staff to do it for them. Yeah, that's right. There's some states that have maybe, uh, you know, their total legislators between the two chambers might be 130 and they might have a legislative council of, you know, 30, 35 attorneys and accountants and that's it. You know, they, each of those people might be assigned to a committee or two, but you know, they don't have personal staff. They don't have often even an intern to ask, Hey, go look up something for me. They're going to call us directly. And so, you know, we know their time is valuable. So we don't, you know, we, we really do just stick to the facts as best we can so we can give them the information that they can use to help them make um, a decision that's best for their state. So if a legislator or a staffer, or I think even certain cases, folks, can folks in administrative agencies also reach out if they need help? Um, yeah, so they, they if, certainly have. So if I was on the on the public sector side, if I was a legislator, a staffer, a regulator, how do I secure the support and assistance? What are things I could do? Like, you know, what what's on the website? Is there a good way to reach out? You know, how can they take advantage of the support you're able to provide? I think we have a massive website. So there are resources on almost every policy imaginable. I mean, not quite, but I'm always finding new web pages for, you know, just within the elections world that I didn't know we had um, because there are just so many and we update them. We build new ones all the time. And so there's that. We have, you know, generic NCSL email addresses, the elections-info at ncsl.org is for anything related to elections. Carmen, I don't know if health has one like that. Yeah, we, we do, uh, along with our own, you know, personal emails like everybody else. Awesome. Well, that means I think what we'll say is that if you are, uh, you know, a state legislator, if you are a staffer and you need back end support on policy issues and trying to get some unvarnished opinions, uh, you know, NCSL is definitely one of your top go to resources and folks should check them out. The last thing I want to talk about before we dive into cannabis policy is something that I thought is worth mentioning, and, and and maybe it's really not that important to anybody else, but I was just thinking about it as we were talking. In the in the before times, uh, you also held a really cool and fun annual conference. Uh, uh, and I will say that I had the, the pleasure one year uh, of attending that conference. Um, I got to be on one of the, the cannabis panels that uh, was put together. Carbon was kind enough to invite myself. Uh, Louis Kosky, who currently is the COO at Metric, uh, and uh, former Representative Dan Pabone, who's now uh, general counsel at a company called Schwaz here in Colorado. Uh, I think it was just the three of us uh, on a panel. Um, it was maybe 2016, I want to say, um, which was really cool because it was a few years since implementation. And Lewis was the former director of the MED. Uh, Representative Pavone was the former majority leader. Uh, so we kind of had the legislator I worked most closely with on legalization, the regulator I worked most closely with on legalization, and me, the policy nerd that kind of helped both of them uh, all on a panel talking about cannabis stuff. Uh, and we had legislators from all over the country asking us, any kind of question you could possibly think of. Um, and it was just such a cool environment. And so I'm sure that 
even though we are we there were the before times and we are in the apocalypse, there will hopefully be the after times. And at the after times, when we can actually get together and see each other uh, and socialize the way normal humans do, I assume there will be future NCSL conferences. And if you have not been to one, uh, I would also give a great plug to that conference because I thought it was really uh, a really fun and really cool opportunity uh, that was kind of unique in the conference space because of how it covered every policy issue, but it also had folks from really all over the country. It was really a great gathering. Thanks, Jordan. Yes, our uh, legislative summit typically held every summer. Unfortunately, uh, as, as you say, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So unfortunately we did have to cancel our legislative summit scheduled for Indianapolis this year in early August, but we are crossing our fingers that we will be seeing all of our members and uh, supporters and fans from across the country next summer in Chicago. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, but you know, we're, we're, we're keeping our chins up about that and hoping for the best. That's awesome. And I'm glad to know it's in Chicago because I know it bounces around. I, I will just let everyone know. I went to the one that was in Boston um, and not just the conference was awesome, but there was this after party at Fenway park. Um, the whole park was closed down there were all these vendors so you could get like hot dogs and whatever you want was kind of included. And you could go out on the field and we were like taking pictures in the dugout, taking pictures in front of the green monster. Mandy is like looking at us jealous right now on the Zoom chat that you can't all see. Uh, but she said there'd be I like, how did I been able to go to one? <laughs> and you missed out on it was a lot of fun. I will say like that was. Uh, a really, really fun night. And I got to kind of schmooze with a lot of different legislators from around the country, including several from the my great home state of New Jersey, uh, and, and really got to just chat about policy. It was really, it wasn't just the 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 actual conference and, and, and seminars themselves, but there was this after uh, event that was really fantastic. And so uh, I definitely hope that I can find a way to make it out to Chicago. Certainly happy for any speaking gigs that you might need me for, plug, plug while we're at it. But, uh, you know, e even without that, uh, I, it, it's an awesome time. And I would definitely love to be able to come back to another conference. So um, I guess the sum of it all is uh, if you work in public policy, you should probably get to know NCSL because they're a wealth of resources. And they're something that I think is really important in our democracy. Uh, I don't think people really realize how hard it is to be a state legislator with limited staff and limited budget and have to be an expert on everything that goes on in our society. Um, and without folks like you, I think we'd probably be in a tricky spot when when people need that backup. So uh, take advantage of them, folks out there. And with that, let's transition to the topic du jour, which I think we will just refer to as a clean sweep around the country for drug policy reform. Um, we're going to focus mostly on uh, the state level initiatives. There were some really cool local initiatives that went through across the country, you know, decriminalization measures in Ohio, new adult use counties in Colorado, uh, as well as we can't forget about our friends up in Oregon, not only decriminalizing psilocybin, but all drugs altogether. Pretty cool. And our friends in D.C. also decriminalizing all drugs. So a lot of progress on drug policy reform has been made. Um, but the thing we want to hone in on today are the five states that passed either medical or adult use ballot measures uh, that will allow for the creation of either uh, protections for medical cannabis patients in their state or a full-on vibrant market so that cannabis consumers can basically be treated like alcohol consumers and not be criminals anymore uh, in their communities. So those states are Arizona, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota. And so we're going to try to dive into each one of those um, to give you a high-level overview of where things are at and what's going to happen next. Uh, and then from there, we'll probably try in future shows to get down into the really nitty gritty weeds of each state. Um, but we're hoping this provides folks with a really good high level overview of uh, what has happened. And so uh, the first one that we want to start with, I guess, it, it continuing in theoretical alphabetical order uh, is Arizona, uh, which I think has been a very interesting state historically on this issue um, and uh, recently just passed uh, adult by a pretty adult use by a pretty wide margin. Um, so maybe that's that's a good place to start. Um, Mandy, can you give us a sense of like the history of some of the past efforts in Arizona and, and how this exact campaign kind of turned out? Yeah, so recreational marijuana was on the ballot, I think in 2016. Is that right, Carmen? Um, and it failed. Yeah. Prior to that, medical marijuana had passed. Um, so this was kind of effort number two for citizens to get marijuana passed. And 
And it did with a pretty high margin. I think all of the marijuana measures passed with wide support this year. Um, for those who don't know, like the citizen initiative process is actually something that's only possible in 24 states and Arizona is one of them. So voters can pursue you know, a change, a legislative change on their own by gathering signatures and getting it on the ballot. And so that's how it happened in Arizona. That's how it happens in all of the measures that we're going to talk about, except in New Jersey. And so I think Jordan has, you know, more interesting thoughts on that one down the road. We will definitely talk about my my home state of New Jersey down the line. But, uh, you know, I think it is a really important place to start that we are starting to whittle through the handful of remaining states that even allow for citizen initiatives. Um, and, and I think it's pretty cool that we're now getting into some of the ones where we may be talking about today where uh, I will just say high school Jordan would not have assumed that this was possible 20 years later uh, in, in, in places like Mississippi. So, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing. And, and just 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 to get the scoring right, uh, because I, I, when you when, when you win by a lot, the scoring gets more exciting. Uh, we won 60 40. So uh, we what we you know uh, legal adult use legalization in Arizona uh, was very very popular and I think will end up being more popular than either of the presidential candidates. Uh, so you know I always like it when people think that cannabis is more popular than the president because well cannabis maybe is forever and, and the presidents aren't. I don't know if you guys have seen those uh, yard signs. Wu Tang is forever. Presidents are temporary, uh, but that is my favorite political sign of the season. Uh, and uh, so I, you know, I guess we're, we're kind of riffing off that one. Um, so in Arizona, now that we've actually kind of moved things over the finish line, there is some really kind of uh, there, there is going to be some real opportunity for the existing industry as well as potential new industry, new market players what do we expect actually, you know, actual legalization? What did the ballot measure look like? And what will implementation of legalization really look like there? Sure. Uh, this is, I will just give a quick little overview of it. You're right. It did pass with a um, pretty uh, wide margin of support, just under 60%. Um, and it was 12 of the 15 counties in Arizona passed it by at least 5% of the vote. And in three of the, the no counties, it failed by like a five to 15% window. So that just kind of shows you how um, this one was pretty spread across the state. And if it did fail, it wasn't by a, a, a re really large margin. Uh, the ballot itself, so, or the initiative itself, Proposition 207 allows for possession of one ounce of flower product or five grams of concentrate for those adults uh, 21 and over. It establishes a licensing system uh, for dispensaries, and that will start with their existing medical dispensaries. And those applications will ideally start uh, per the language in the in the initiative by mid January of 2021 to March 20 or uh, between January of 2021 and March of 2021. And the the one thing that I found that was a pretty interesting tweak. Uh, to this measure compared to some others I've seen is that it says no more than one dispensary will be allowed per 10 pharmacies. And that was an interesting, uh, you know, comparison or calculation that I haven't seen in a measure before. It may be something that comes up later in the rules or regulations, but I've, I've never kind of seen it come out in a, in the, in the initiative itself. Uh, it will allow for delivery. They're assuming it might take a few years to allow for that. Uh, it adver advertising for adults, uh, if it's for 21 and older, that will be allowed, but advertising to children is not allowed. That's pretty common across the board that advertising to children is not allowed and that you can't mimic brands or labels that are marketed to children once you do develop your product packaging. And no products uh, are allowed that look like a human or an insect, an animal, fruit cartoon, those types of things, or toy shapes, anything that would potentially uh, appeal to a child. It, that's, that's all um, prohibited. And it also allows the Department of Health Services to develop more regulatory rules, including the licensing for those uh, dispensaries, cultivators, testing facilities, production facilities, as well as ensuring the safety, health, and training of employees. And again, that is another little interesting tidbit that that, that was inserted into the proposition and not, or into the initiative and not necessarily um, kind of assumed through a licensing, prod, uh, a licensing regulation of the employees. 
Uh, it also enacts a tax of 16% on those adult use sales to fund a variety of services in the state. And it also allows for home grow of up to six plants per adult or 12 plants per household. And that's uh, will be enacted once the election results are made official on November 30th. And as far as our licensing goes, and this is something we're seeing in some of the newer, uh, the states that have passed cannabis initiatives more recently, they established a social equity ownership program, which allows for up to 26 licenses for people from populations that have historically been disenfranchised by marijuana laws. We see that now in uh, Massachusetts. We see it in a lot of the local um, measures in California and Illinois also was really big about that. And it also will allow for previous marijuana convictions to, uh, if it was say like a felony possession charge, they will be able to apply to have their records expunged by the state courts. And a couple other things that were interesting, the Department of Health will be prohibited from stopping the operation of marijuana businesses through what they described as unduly burdensome requirements or prevent operation of medical or adult use dispensaries in the same location. So as we experienced in Colorado, there used to be kind of a firewall between a location if they offered sales both for medical and adult use, but you know that's kind of been changed in uh, the, the after time since we're kind of one of the old timers in our state as well as Washington. And, uh, and something else that this uh, proposal points out and it's much like the rules in the District of Columbia, it specifically allows for the sharing or transferring of one ounce of flower product or five grams or six plants between adults. So I thought that was another kind of interesting factoid of the of this measure in particular. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's an incredibly comprehensive ballot initiative, right? And I think one of the one of the interesting things about all the ones that we're going to talk about is there are varying levels of detail and complexity in each one of these initiatives. Um, and Arizona is probably, I think out of all of them, maybe the, the most detailed one that we're going to discuss today. Um, it is a statutory measure, right? So it's not a constitutional amendment. Um, and that maybe lends itself to a lot more of this granular detail um, that that people think about it. You know, I, I, I don't I think the pharmacy thing is particularly interesting. Um, as always, we want to fixate on caps and limitations on licenses because that's un-American. Uh, and this is America, at least sometimes these days. Uh, but ratioing it to pharmacies, I mean, that is a really, um, that's a really interesting way to do it. We've seen that approach in medical um, at times when they can't, when, when the politicians can't do a good job of figuring out how many licenses should be, there be in a market because this isn't communist Russia and we don't do that in our country. Um, but for some reason, governments seem to think that it's a good idea in the cannabis industry. Um, but in this case, they didn't peg it to a specific number. The only real specific number is a reservation of at least 26 licenses reserved for social equity. Um, but we are saying that that there has to be at least, uh, or there, there can't be more than the number, like a 10% of the total number of pharmacies. And it's just weird that they picked pharmacies. Like it, it kind of makes sense to tie to pharmacies in a medical context, but like liquor stores might be the better proxy for an adult use context. And so, um, you know, I, look, I think we all know the reality is that, that all, all policy is the product of compromise and negotiation. The difference between a ballot initiative is that compromise and negotiation occurs internally among the authors of the initiative, whereas in a legislative process, it occurs among all parties. Uh, you know, I, 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 this is something I teach in my law school class, right? The political negotiation in a ballot drafting is the supporters of a concept figuring out what they can sell to the electorate. They're like prognosticating against what their opponents might say, what the electorate might think. Whereas the legislative process is everybody argues and the legislature has to figure out in public kind of who's right. Uh, and I think that that's a very unique difference. And so all of these things, just like any other piece of policy, are the product of compromise. And, you know, I, I the folks who worked on the Arizona initiative are probably, you know, I, I can't tell you who wrote it, but I know that they had a lot, probably a lot of really hard choices to make. Uh, and in turn, these are the negotiations and these are the solutions. And I think at least, 
you know, it's pretty safe to say that Arizona will have a larger and more vibrant market in the next several years than we will likely see out of states where the legislature is, is adopting policy. And I think we're probably looking at, you know, hopefully a good number of businesses and entrepreneurial opportunities in Arizona moving forward. Yeah, you make some uh, interesting points in there, uh, Jordan. The, the one thing I was thinking of too is that the ballot initiatives that are brought by the voters to the ballot have seemed to have a tighter timeline for implementation than some of the legislative measures that we've seen out there. And I don't know if, you know, why that is, but, you know, some of the legislative measures that have passed, which are very few um, for adult use cannabis, they have taken longer to implement, but you also see it with medical cannabis programs when they've set up, you know, the the fastest one I think was nine months and the longest one's been three to four years. So yeah, my objective observation of studying both the legislative measures and the uh, ballot initiatives are that they are probably asking for a tighter timeline from their, from their regulators than perhaps the legislature might. Yeah. And I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, I, you are you are always going to give yourself more wiggle room than other people will give you, right? That is a facet of human life. I don't think that that is unique to any group of people regardless. And so if the people are going to tell the legislature, we want you to do something that I think is important to note that they have not done on their own, right? Nothing, this is, this is kind of one of like the things that is a mystery of ballot initiatives is like, why do we need to do this via a ballot initiative, right? Like, look at California, maybe the most ridiculous case of all. Like, did California really need a ballot initiative that cost millions of dollars to legalize marijuana? Like, I'm pretty sure the state legislature could have just done it. Ballot initiatives are really when the legislature is not acting upon the will of the people. And therefore, when the when the people are giving the legislature something to do, they probably want to give them some timelines and guidelines so that it doesn't extend out forever. Whereas a legislature that is passing its own rules, they're one, first of all, they're doing it. And second of all, they're much less likely to box themselves into a corner, right? Like, you you know, that's that's not smart. You know, if, in policymaking, you, your goal is to give yourself wiggle room. Other people want to box you into a corner. And so I think that that's kind of how you see those things. I think the other thing that's worth noting is that, is that most state-level ballot initiatives have not included caps on licenses at the state level. They've left some of that to local control. But I think one of the biggest issues that we've seen in terms of the rollout times you mentioned, Carmen, is that invariably, when you limit the number of licenses, there tends to be a lot of lawsuits and that drags out your implementation time, right? So when we've seen the legislatures move forward, most of the legislatures cap the number of licenses and include a merit-based process to issue those licenses. And that, that means you have to have an application process, you need to have an evaluation process, and then you need to leave lots of time for all the people who didn't get licenses to sue the people who did and vice versa and all of the fun stuff that we're watching in Illinois right now. Um, and so I think that has a big impact on it too, right? So I think that, but I think invariably you're right that, you know, there are really strict timelines in the Arizona initiative, um, as well as guardrails designed to basically avoid the government from, you know, kind of tanking this in, in a way, you know, that the the regulation you mentioned, the, the, the provision you mentioned about not adopting rules that would make it inoperable. I think the, the language they use in Colorado was unreasonably impracticable, which is just a absolutely fantastically jargony legalese pile of nonsense to most people. But, uh, you know, we're very glad we have that because we had to use it a couple of times during implementation to say, okay, well, you can't do that because uh, it would just be too far and no one would be able to run a business. And that's not what the voters voted for. So, um, you know, I think Arizona will see over the next year or so, but I think Arizona has a good chance to get stood up pretty quickly. Um, you know, and, and that's what we need. You know, the faster these initiatives get stood up and these markets get stood up, the faster we can remove cannabis from the illicit market and get good public health and safety regulation over the industry. So uh, kudos to the people of Arizona. Um, and moving right along in our national tour, uh, the next one we want to stop at is the great state of Mississippi. Um, 
of all of the places that we would be not expecting to be talking about a successful cannabis ballot initiative, I think Mississippi might be towards the top of the list, maybe the most conservative state in our country. Uh, but it was not close, was it? Um. No, this is Mandy. I can jump in here. It wasn't close at all. This was a huge pass on medical marijuana in Mississippi. They passed a lot of things in that state, including a new flag. Uh, but this is a really big one. And there had been no marijuana on the ballot ever before this year, to my knowledge. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong. And Mississippi actually has kind of an interesting process. It's a little bit different from some of the other citizen initiative processes. So the sponsors had to put their proposal before the legislature first, and then the legislature could either say, sure, we like it and enact it and not have to have it on the ballot, or they could offer an alternative. And so the second thing is what they did. They offered an alternative and voters first had to ask or answer the question, do you want either of these measures or neither of these measures? And most of the voters wanted either. And then they got to choose which of the two they wanted. And 74% opted for the original like citizen initiative measure, not the legislature's. Um, so that that's, that's a pretty big deal, I think. It passed with a really large margin. This is Carmen. Yeah, I saw that the either, the either or neither question, the first question, so to speak, was uh, six was passed with 68% for either. And then uh, looking at the initiative 65, which is the which was the voter led and the alternative 65 or 65A uh, that the legislature put forth as their alternative, um, the, the voter led passed with roughly 74% of the vote. And another quirky thing, uh, Mandy will know for sure if this is the case in other states, it had to receive at least 40% of the overall ballots cast which I thought I've never seen like a threshold for something like that, that depended on the amount of ballots cast. I've did, that's just a cool math problem that in, in almost 20 years, I'd never noticed before. Yeah, most states don't do it like that. Often it's a simple majority or maybe 60% or something to pass a constitutional amendment. I think just two other states have this weird kind of percentage of the total votes cast. Um, and so- it worked out in Mississippi, at least. And, and that percentage applies not to the I, do you want either or neither. It applies to the individual initiative you picked. And so this was the real the real scary thing in Mississippi is they could have won on the ballot question of should medical marijuana be legal. They could have won on the our initiative, our language or the legislature's alternative language. But at the end of the day, if the if their language did not breach that 40 percent threshold of all votes cast, they would have lost. So it's one of those weird political situations where you could win, but you still lose. Um, and and that was I think that was the biggest fear of all in Mississippi was like, you know, the polling looked really good. But this is this is really confusing for voters. I mean, I think I think first and foremost, we want to pause and give an absolute kudos to the people of Mississippi, because this is some confusing stuff. Like, I don't think anyone in the country is is, you know, has dealt with it. I've not heard of any situation where this is how they handle things. And it's got to make even just the act of voting kind of confusing uh, for folks. Um, and and so I think in and of itself, I think it's important to just pause there and be like, this is kind of unique. The fact that it the fact that it ended up this way is great, but this was a pretty it's a pretty dicey move um, to end up in this political situation. I, I, I'm just I'm just going to come out and say it because it, it would be wildly inappropriate, and and neither of you are going to endorse anything I'm about to say. But the idea that the legislature in Mississippi tried to do an end run around this citizen initiative by confusing the voters is I, I will just call politely undemocratic. Um, and I think we can all just say what it is. This was a situation where uh, the people of Mississippi were well ahead of this issue than their elected officials. And that when the elected officials tried to thwart the will of the people by putting on an alternative measure, by confusing the issue, uh, it's kind of amazing to see 
the shenanigans get called by, by the people in the ballot measure. Not only did they win by 68%, but of those people, the vast, vast majority said, you know, we're going to go with what the petitioners put together and not the alternative the legislature put together. And I think in and of itself, that is a win for democracy in our country uh, at a time when when every win we can get for democracy is a great thing. And so uh, that is said with no comment, support or disagreement from our wonderful friends at NCSL. But I will say it because I think that it's kind of amazing how things all played out. And I'm really proud that the people of Mississippi not only voted for this in overwhelming numbers, but they navigated the confusion created on their ballot and that they rejected an effort by the legislature to undermine the, the will of the people. And that's an awesome thing. So given that context, what is actually in the proponents initiative, right? I mean, I, I this is this is a pretty cool constitutional amendment for medical marijuana. What what what? I'm in, maybe of all the markets, this is the one I'm actually most excited about. So I guess the question would be, why should one be excited about medical marijuana in Mississippi? What what does what does it look like in terms of what was actually passed? Sure. Yes, you're correct that Mississippi does provide in many ways a very unique situation. Uh, a little factoid for the state trivia buffs out there. Uh, Mississippi is home to the only federally allowed grow of cannabis in the country at Ole Miss. And I think it's been there since the 70s. Um, someone can, you know, comment if, if I'm wrong on that, but I believe it was the 70s. And so any of the any of the research that is done with uh, federally supported funds, the cannabis comes from that uh, cultivation center and the it's all treated and, and manufactured there on site. And then any of the federally approved patients that are left, and I believe it's fewer than 10, uh, they receive their products from, from that location. And so it's kind of a fact, little, little interesting tidbit that Mississippi's been home to the, the federal grow for all this time. And a lot of people had no clue. So uh, yeah. is the and, initial- and I, think- I think it just real quick, I think it's really important to note that that's kind of one of the more amazing things, right? Most people don't realize not only is all the all the marijuana that's grown for studies for research studies uh, in the country is grown in Mississippi, but not only that, there are actually a small handful of people who are approved as federal medical marijuana patients, and they get from our federal government a tin full of weed. I think once a month. Uh, uh, one of these guys is a gentleman named Irv Rosenfeld, who I've had I've had the pleasure of meeting. He is a hysterical character uh, in in our cannabis uh, reform world. And he will go around with a tin, and you guys can't see it, but I'm doing Italian-style hand signals to our friends here. Uh, it is a giant tin full of the most gnarly, disgusting joints you could ever imagine. Um, to even call this stuff ditchweed is insulting to ditchweed. Uh, it is literally like they don't debone it. They don't they flower. They literally take the entire plant and just stick it in a grinder, stalk, stem, seeds and all, grind it all up, put it into joint rolling machines, and they send it out to these people around the country who I hope if they are really sick people in need of care, which I'm assuming they all are, Irv certainly is, that they get their cannabis from somewhere else because it is grown in just the most ridiculous ways. And it's why all the federal studies, approved studies for marijuana are so challenging to, to accomplish because not only is it really hard to get approval to do a federal study, but then they're, they're not using the actual products that are available to your average medical cannabis patient. They're using this very specific marijuana that comes from Mississippi, which we will just politely say is of, of inferior quality to that which is available on the regulated market. And that's become a real point of contention. This isn't like, I'm not breaking news here, right? I think I think the, the federal government recognizes this and that's why there have been efforts for years to try to find a way to get more producers online. Um, although I'm pretty sure still the only one is at Old Miss. So uh, that is a good and very fun factoid to know. I don't think as many people realize it. Uh, and I'll never forget when they, I was showed that tin of joints and I was like, oh, my God, like, really? I, I, I just talk about talk, talk about not taking pride in your work, I guess, you know. Uh, so anyway, well, the good news is that in addition to the federal grow, there will now be at least state regulated, not federally legal, but state legal medical cannabis grows uh, in the great state of Mississippi in the near future. And what is that from from the initiative standpoint? What does that look like? What who's allowed to become a patient? And uh, what, what are we going to see as that program rolls out? 
Sure. Yeah. Initiative 65 includes 22 spe uh, specified conditions and, or diseases. Um, and there is also a way to add more in the future. Uh, but it, there's also the uh, ability for any physician to, to issue a referral or a recommendation for someone to become a patient if they believe whatever ailment they have could potentially benefit uh, the patient and it would outweigh any associated risk of using the product. So that was another, um, you know, sometimes there's that caveat of kind of and or physician um, discretion or, and sometimes there isn't. So um, this, that was included in this initiative. As far as the sales part of it goes, it allows for uh, possession or purchase of two and a half ounces of product and it also sets a max to be purchased by any one patient in 14 days of that two and a half ounces. It prohibits smoking or using in public places, just like every other medical or adult use law out there does. It taxes the rate, uh, their tax rate for sales of their medical is set at 7%, which is the, the state's uh, tax, sales tax right now. So it'll, it'll always be equal to the state sales tax. So there, it, it's not, doesn't have like a, an excise tax on top or anything like an, an other states have done with their adult use. The cap of the cost of the patient ID card will be $50 and it will have oversight provided by the Mississippi Department of Health, which is pretty much in line with all of the other medical programs I can think of off the top of my head um, with maybe a few exceptions, but uh, they're also created in the um, amendment a a deadline to issue their pain, patient ID cards as of August 15th of 2021. And they also uh, can create other rules and regulations by July 1st of 2021. It has uh, requirements for distance from, for dispensaries from uh, schools, churches, and childcare providers of 500 feet. Again, this is pretty standard across most of these programs for adult use and or uh, medical programs. And it does not require physicians to provide a patient referral to anyone who comes to and seeks one from that doctor. Under no circumstances um, are they required to provide one. So there still is discretion. And it also prohibits, this is, this is another, this is an interesting factoid for Mississippi too. It prohibits placing a limit on the number of dispensaries or care centers as they're referred to in the language um, or for the state to set a price uh, for products. And, it, and localities may deny business operations um, within their boundaries, but they can also, they, they can't uh, deny businesses, but they can enact other regulations that could be perceived as more strict than, um, than, the, than the other states um, or than the other initiatives laws, but they cannot be more strict than how they interpret a retail pharmacy or similarly sized commercial or industrial business, which, that was uh, that was interesting. I've I've never heard that language either used in one of these um, measures. So, you know, your point for creativity. I've never seen that before. Yeah, and I think that what what we see in Mississippi is a real effort by the authors to make sure that there is a normal free market opportunity for medical cannabis. So, you know, what they're saying is you know, the state can't put a cap on the number of licenses. They're, they're, they're just flat out prohibited from it in the Constitution. There will be no license caps in Mississippi. And then they went down to the local level, and it basically boils down to you can't zone us more restrictively than you would a pharmacy or other similar business, right? And we see that too at times is, well, you can't, you can't cap us and you can't prohibit us, but we're going to zone you out of existence. We're going to make it impossible or we're going to create a zoning setback requirement that basically would be like, we're not capping the number of dispensaries, but basically through zoning and setbacks, you're only going to have five stores in our town no matter what. And so I think that the goal really here, I think the only interpretation of these provisions in concert is that the, the authors wanted to make sure that this was not one of these you know, East Coast style, really restrictive markets limited and granted to, you know, the, the the people who win the essay writing contest. The goal really here is to have a normal American style free market uh, 
for medical cannabis in Mississippi. And I think that that's going to, you know, obviously inure to the benefit of, of uh, patients in Mississippi because we see it time and time again that these really limited licenses, all, all it does is delay the onset of the market and drive prices through the roof because supply is diminished. And so I think that, you know, those are some pretty creative and intelligent ways to not necessarily tell local governments what to do, but prevent them from being super restrictive so that patients are prevented from having access at fair and reasonable prices. Um, so as we continue through the M's and we move back to the other side of the country and way up to the other end of the North, we want to talk about Montana and initiative 190, um, which also turns out was victorious. Yeah. So Montanans had two related marijuana measures to vote on, including 190, both were citizen initiatives and recreational marijuana had not been on their ballots before, but medical had. And this also, like um, like you said, this passed with a good amount of support, both in the mid 50s. And that's about all I have to say there. The Montana process for citizen initiatives is pretty straightforward, I should say, compared to Mississippi. Yeah, it definitely is one of the more straightforward ones. And, uh, you know, it also, um, you know, it is kind of much more lengthy than the Mississippi one because it's a statutory initiative, but, um, you know, also deals with some of these licensing issues. So, so Carmen, can you give us a sense of what was in the Montana initiative? Sure. Uh, this initiative included the provisions of that this is an adult product or an adult program for purchasing for those 21 and older. Uh, there was also a measure on the ballot that needed to be kind of clarified if this passed because the definition of adult in in Montana is 18 or over generally, but they wanted to tweak it to make it that for alcohol and marijuana purchases, you have to be 21. So they, they had another measure that basically said the, we're going to define the term adult for a marijuana and liquor purchases to be 21 and older. So that, again, was kind of an interesting uh, sidebar to this uh, other initiative. Uh, so they, again, they have a, it's a program for 21 and older. It has a 20% tax on all products that are sold. And half of the revenue from that will go to wildlife, parks, and rec. And the rest will be split up between uh, the general fund and some to local regulating authorities, uh, veterans programs, drug treatment programs, and healthcare workers. So it's really, um, really specific in where that revenue is going to go, where a lot of other state initiatives have not uh, been that specific. Uh, it allows the Department of Revenue to create their licensing regulations for those businesses, the cultivation, manufacturing, processing, transport, and the sale of the products. And uh, they have the deadline of for applications to start in January of 22 and giving some preferential application time for the first year for those current medical licensee holders. And the other thing, and Jordan, you're probably going to know a lot more about this than I did initially, but they have for um, 10 different tiers of licensing based on size. The most I've seen before, I believe, was five or six and that was based on canopy size. So this was like, whoa, 10. That was kind of a new new one for me. Um, the rest of the initiative, it allows for possession of one ounce or eight grams of concentrate, home grow of four plants, and that would be effective as of January 1st of 2021. And again, like other programs, it sets labeling and safety regulations, including potency and quality standards. And, and it also allows for that expungement or resentencing of marijuana-related crimes and it also establishes penalties for violations by individuals and businesses uh, that have broken any of the rules that are outlined in the initiative specifically. And again, it also has those uh, caveats for local control, uh, allowing employers to set limits on uh, use on properties, things like that. And localities may also hold a referendum to prohibit dispensaries and that would keep sales on hold in their community until that is decided. Um, and then there are some caveats of what localities may not do, and they may not prohibit transportation of cannabis products on public roads, or again, that terminology enact unduly burdensome regulations. 
And my understanding is that the localities can't completely prohibit commercial production in their areas versus the sales. So they can prevent um, sales, but they, can, they can't allow, they can't prevent cultivation or processing in their areas. And it also prevents advertising of any type, which sometimes we see it get really uh, specific in the types of advertising that is allowed, but this prohibits advertising of any type. It just, it's like one sentence, that's <laughs> all it is. <laughs> I mean, that's so interesting in and of itself, because that's just such a so anathema to, to our country, right? I mean, the commercial speech is protected. And so we see these various restrictions and carvings out of what people can do. I'm not familiar with any cannabis ordinance that just bans things outright. Um, you know, and, and I think that I'll just note at this point that the two adult use ones that we've talked about thus far, uh, both included home grow. And both included uh, criminal justice reform measures regarding uh, expungement of records. And so we are going to give massive kudos to those things because we love individual freedoms and hate collateral consequences on the weed wonks. So good kudos to both of those. Uh, and uh, now moseying on along back to the other side of the country, we get to what I think may be one of the most ballot, interesting ballot initiatives of all time. Uh, to talk about. And that is the ballot initiative from my home state where I grew up, where our, our co-host who's with us in spirit, Andrew Livingston, grew up, the great state of New Jersey, the state of Chris Christie, Cory Booker, and many other politicians over the years. Uh, shout out to Jamel Holly, one of my favorite uh, New Jersey legislators who's been engaged on this issue. Uh, and the great state of New Jersey passed one of the most interesting cannabis ballot measures, not only by a wide margin, and, and that is significant, but also it is significant in its insignificance uh, in terms of what it does. So uh, so this, this one is going to be kind of short because there's not a lot to talk about. But why don't we start with, with what really went on in New Jersey? And, and Mandy, give us a sense of like why New Jersey is so funky, unlike these other ones. Well, so the weirdest thing about New Jersey or, or the most unusual thing is that unlike all of the other measures which were citizen initiatives, this is a legislative referral. The legislature decided to put this question to voters. They did not have to do that. Um, they could have maybe decided some of this amongst themselves. Um, and they, the city of New Jersey had not had marijuana on the ballot before. Uh, I think this is actually the first time legalizing recreational marijuana, or I should say adult use marijuana, has been a legislative referral too. So there's some interesting things uh, going on with how it got onto the ballot. It's just very atypical, I should say. That's all and, I think I know and, about there. I know. Well, and it won. It won by a good wide okay. margin. Yes, it won by 67%. So over two thirds of voters said, yes, this is this is what we want, um, yeah. which, which is huge. We can't forget that. You got the best job on the podcast. You're the one that gets to say we won by a wide margin each time. That's the most fun job. The rest, Carmen and I are just talking about the nerdy wonky details. You get to be the one who said it won by this much. Like that's the exciting, you're the, the, the rah-rah supporter of, of, uh, of victory here. So uh, neutral you know. as NCSL neutral, right. neutral, <laughs> neutral, but now we're post-election and you could, you could maybe at least be happy for the fact that they, are you allowed to be happy for they passed? I don't even know. We probably should cut this out of the podcast anyway. I think I can say, or I would say that this measure passing was such a large margin and the fact that all of the marijuana measures passed this year, I don't know that that's ever really happened before, unless we think about years where there were maybe just one or two measures, but there are quite a few this year. Um, that really shows that the public perception on marijuana has shifted significantly and toward a much more positive perception. So in addition to being uh, a successful ballot measure, 67 to 33, I mean, that's a pretty wide margin, you know, basically two to one, again, two to one, cannabis being victorious, certainly good. Uh, Carbon, the language of the initiative is, is kind of unique. And we talked about this on a previous podcast with Axel, the campaign manager. But for those who, who, who want to get the quick sum up, what exactly does the New Jersey ballot measure do? Um, in a nutshell, which isn't a whole lot long, uh, bigger than the than the act itself, it says that the that it approves for the Cannabis Regulatory Commission and the state legislature to create the regulations 
uh, for an adult use uh, regulated program and cap the state sales tax on products at 6.625%. And that so, was about the, the largest kind of significant things that I could find in the, in the measure. It all just leaves the rest of the, the nuts and bolts to the Cannabis Regulatory Commission and the state legislature. Yeah. So the, the, the New Jersey initiative did a couple of things. One, it set a sales tax should marijuana actually become regulated. Um, that was a contentious issue for the legislature leading up to things. So I think that that will maybe take at least one issue off the table, the political table as they implement. And then the other thing that it did is it created criminal protections for what is referred to as regulated marijuana. Um, the problem with that is, as we talked on the last show, there is no regulated marijuana in the state of New Jersey, right? That, that, that it only protects regulated marijuana, which means you bought it from a store. And I think that the problem is there are no stores. And so for the people of New Jersey, maybe the most important thing to note is that until there are stores, you are not necessarily protected from criminal law. And once you do, it's not clear exactly how that's going to play out, because if you got your marijuana from what we what we call the uh, the private market here in Colorado or the or, or the legacy market in Colorado, uh, that also would not be protected. In Colorado, you're just protected for possession of up to one ounce. In New Jersey, the only thing that's protected is regulated marijuana. So we've already seen the legislature have conversations about kicking off things. And hopefully what this does is it just lights a firestorm underneath that legislature, gives them the political cushion and the support for them to feel confident and they can get things rolling because uh, I certainly will say I have a lot of friends back in New Jersey that are very excited about all of this, but I think they will be a lot more excited when a dispensary opens up with high quality products and reasonable prices near them, which may happen one day soon. So kudos to the great state of New Jersey. You have created a, a monumental victory for mostly nothing. But success is success, and we will not look at success negatively, regardless of the fact that it has literally zero impact on the lives of a single person in New Jersey. Uh, so yay, success, lots and lots more work to do. And finally, the last state, as we go back into more the middle of the country, I think Mississippi medical marijuana, surprising a sentence in and of itself. But I think in addition surprising, in addition interesting, is the great state of South Dakota, which is the first state to legalize medical marijuana and adult use marijuana all at once in one election cycle, uh, they not only they not only passed an initiative for medical, which they didn't have before, but they passed adult use at the same time. They will be the first to implement both at once. They will be the first to pass both at once at a ballot initiative. And we are really excited for the great people of South Dakota. Mandy, can you give us a sense of, of, of anything that was interesting about that process or how it got there or, or, or even just the ending vote tallies, if, if that's really. So I think the third time's the charm here. Uh, medical marijuana had failed in 2006 and 2010 and passed with 70 percent of the vote this time. And then recreational passed as well. Not quite as high of a margin, but 54 percent. So South Dakota is going from you know, no marijuana to a lot more or a lot more possibilities for it now. And I'll just add a couple of things. Uh, it also not only started starts or enables a medical program and adult use program, it also has a hemp provision in there. So this really is seems like the trifecta of kind of all things cannabis related that could be, you know, rolled up into one measure, um, you know, in just in that in one in one measure. So it's doing three different things, which I think is pretty fascinating. I don't know if that would pass the uh, muster of a single single issue uh legislation in most states that have that, but it's just an interesting, uh, you know, I, I, that's the only one I've ever seen that has any reference to hemp, which, you know, is, is like the industrial hemp agriculture product, not necessarily used for a recreational um, reason. Yeah. And, and the medical measure there passed 69 to 31. So by a very, very wide margin. Um, again, I think what we see is that even in conservative states, medical marijuana is 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 exceedingly popular among the people. Um, in contrast, adult use was much closer. Um, not surprising, I think, at all 
that 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 it was much closer. Uh, but fifty three to forty seven is victory nonetheless, um, and it is success. And I think that the people of South Dakota uh, over time will be really happy. I think the tricky part here is going to be implementation, as it is always. Um, there are some deadlines in the initiative um, that will occur over the next year. Um, and we'll see how that plays out. You know, I think that the, the question that I have for South Dakota at a macro level is, is it going to go the way of Oklahoma? Um, acceptance, tolerance, and uh, a, a really robust and vibrant market? Or is it going to go the way of Maine where, where things really stalled and took a long time to get going? But nonetheless, Maine is, is moving along even after a delay. So, you know, we don't want to necessarily... Uh, you know, uh, 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 look, a gift horse in the mouth here. I think this is a major, major success and something that, you know, we should be happy about. The people of South Dakota spoke and hopefully they'll get the policy that they want. Um, any Anything before we wrap up that's kind of interesting about South Dakota that we should touch on? Let me see here. It has um, provisions to set a 15% tax rate on their adult use sales and that it would start by April 1st, 2022. Um, although it, they want them to have the rules to implement the program uh, as of effective as of October 29th. And that's a, based on the calculation of 120 days to enact the rules to implement the program after the legal effective date of the measure, which is July 1st of 2021. Again, lots of math involved, never seen a measure that needed a lot of math like that, but uh, they have, you know, it all for the medical side, it creates the registry of ID cards and uh, it creates all the licensing for cultivation, testing, manufacturing, and dispensaries. And uh, you know, the, the adult use side allows for one ounce of possession and the, uh, the tax money goes to the revenue department for enforcement, and then half of the remaining revenue goes to public schools and the state's general fund. So again, you know, they're still working on uh, coming up with a few other things, but you know, those are kind of the big picture regulations. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think that I think that it'll be very interesting to see how things play out in South Dakota. One of the things that I noticed is there is no cat caps are not allowed for medical, but there are caps allowed for adult use. And I don't think we've really, I mean, not only have we not seen medical and adult use implemented at the same time like that, but to implement them under different, potentially different licensing systems, I think will be fascinating to watch just from an academic observer perspective. None of us live in South Dakota, so uh, I don't think any of us have a real dog in the fight there. But uh, I, I, that's just a fascinating political dynamic. And I think we'll, 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 we'll just have to see how it plays out. So, um, you know, that, uh, I, I will, I will fully admit to the wonderful listening audience. We are over my promised recording time on a Friday afternoon with two wonderful people who are donating time. So we are just going to wrap up really quickly. I don't know if there are any closing thoughts either of you would like to share real quick. Getting the uh, it's been a long week. Everyone's burnt out and tired, uh, shaken of the heads, which I I appreciate because I am exhausted. I am not even sure how we mustered the energy for this show, uh, but we did. And we brought the people some awesome information. We hope you all learned something while listening to this show. We hope it was at least entertaining enough that you kept us to the end. Uh, for all of our policymakers and regulators and folks out there, check out NCSL. They're an amazing resource. I tremendously have appreciated them over the course of my career and the friendships that we've built. Uh, Mandy, it was great getting to meet you today. Uh, I look forward to one day in the aftertimes being able to get bagels and chat policy with you. And Carmen, uh, as always, appreciate your time and is always a blast to talk policy with you both. Uh, so with that, we'll just say happy Friday, everybody. And of course, stay nerdy. All right, Shay, make the magic.